1: Laurie Holmgren's Emily Swift mystery series are cosy mysteries which break the conventions. Instead of taking place in a small town community with a predictable set of friends, the convention for cosies, international travel writer Emily is in Hawaii in one book and in the beautiful English Cotswolds in the next. And her armchair travelling readers love her for it. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and Laurie talks about her second career as an author of fiction, and the mystery in her own life that could be a plotline for one of her stories. But before we get to Laurie, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Laurie's books and social media, as well as a full transcript of our conversation. While there, why not leave us a suggestion or a comment? we love to hear from you. But now, here's Laurie. Hello there, Laurie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. I'm so glad to be here. Look, beginning at the beginning, as we like to do, how did you get into writing? Was there a kind of epiphany that you suddenly thought one day, I've got to write fiction a once upon a time moment or, and and if so, was there a catalyst for it?
2: Well, there kind of was. I had always loved to read. And even when I was a little girl, I would make up stories just for my own amusement. But when I was in college, I took a short story writing class and just loved it. We had to write a story every single week, which is pretty challenging, but I enjoyed it so much. But from then on, I had the idea that someday I would write a novel. And it was just kind of in the back of my head. I I didn't start writing to do it, but all my jobs involved writing. I wrote ads and news articles and op-eds, column speeches, news releases, you name it. But still, in the back of my head, I thought, someday I'll write a novel. Then the real catalyst. I took a week long, very intensive novel writing workshop, and it was taught by Will Weaver, who wrote Red Earth, White Earth. And from then on, I was really serious about writing and really plunged into it. At that workshop, I met other writers and we formed a writers' group. We still meet, we still stay together and critique each other's work, and it's very helpful.
1: That's wonderful. I hadn't heard of Will
2: Weaver actually. Have you heard of the movie Sweetland? Yes, I think I have. Yes, he wrote he wrote the story that that is based on. Okay, gravestone yeah, yeah. made of wheat, I believe it's called.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you've now got three books published in your Emily Swift Travel Mysteries, and the latest one that we're talking about, particularly today, is A Killing in the Cotswolds. Your central character is a travel writer, and you pack lots of fabulous tourist information into every book, I know, but particularly this Cotswolds one, because it's such an amazing area to visit. Is that part of the appeal for you, that you get to go travelling?
2: Well, you know, it is a wonderful excuse to travel. But actually, the only time I planned a trip that was on purpose to collect information for a book was my trip to the Cotswolds. My first book, Murder on Madeline Island, I wrote about a place I knew very well because I had been there often with my writer's group and I was familiar with it. So it was pretty easy for me to do the descriptions from that. Second book, again, Homicide in Hawaii, I chose a place where I had already gone on business trips and vacations, and I thought it was just gorgeous, and of course, very different from Minnesota. So, I could just plunge in writing because it made such an impression on me. But for Killing in the Cotswolds, I had never been there, and I did go to England on purpose to gather information. As you know, my sleuth, Emily Swift, is a travel writer, and her assignment is to write about springtime in England. So we went there, and I kept a very detailed journal. Every night, I'd write out my longhand notes about places my husband and I had been, meals we'd eaten, lots of lovely teas. It was great fun. So yes, I hope to do more of that.
1: And was that actually in the springtime?
2: Well, it was in the springtime, and that's kind of a sad thing. I was expecting, because I had been to England in spring before, in, in March, and it was always glorious. It was daffodils and crocus and the crocus carpet and just beautiful. But this time, it was cold. It was freezing cold and there was snow and ice. I couldn't believe it. So I had to decide, am I going to write this the way I intended to, describing it um, as beautiful and spring-like, or should I have Emily shocked and surprised to find out that it's not what she expected? And that is finally what I decided to do
1: there's lots of wonderful destinations or locations there like the Shakespeare house and all those sorts of things. And you give those a very nice chance for people to learn more about those. Were you an English major? Is that part of what you really love about a place like the Cotswolds?
2: Well, it is. Like my character, Emily, I was an English major. I've always loved Shakespeare. And so going to Stratford and visiting his birthplace was just a thrill. And it's fun for me to work in Emily's literary references and her enthusiasm for books and for English history. So, But I also, I discovered a tourist spot that was new to me. I did not know anything about Averbury. So discovering those ruins and learning about that ancient civilization um, was fascinating. Originally, I didn't plan to put it into the book. I was just going there to learn about it, but the setting kind of wormed its way into the plot. So it's there.
1: Yeah, and for people who might not have heard of the Avebury Circle, tell us a little bit about it.
2: Well, it is um, kind of like Stonehenge, but on a sm- it's older than Stonehenge. And unlike there, you can walk among the stones, you can touch them. It's very isolated. It's, but it is where a very ancient civilization lived thousands of years ago, and they were very sophisticated. We don't know exactly how they managed to put these huge stones upright, but they did uh, do it. And we're not exactly sure of the purpose. They think it was uh, some kind of religious ritual, but uh, interesting to go to and very beautiful and remote.
1: Yes, I must say I was lucky enough to go there many years ago now, and I was just amazed at how unpopulated it was. You could basically almost feel you had the place to yourself when I went. It was quite remarkable and beautiful.
2: Yes, it was like that too. We were the only people there, and this was a remarkable experience. Interestingly, right after I was in college, I went to Europe with my friend Susan, and Stonehenge was actually like that then. You walked across the moor and you were the only person and there was this little ticket-taking booth and you paid your money and walked in, but we were the only people there. So it's not like that anymore, but it was. Oh,
1: no, yeah. In, in that book, Killing in the Cotswolds, Emily is visiting an old friend when she gets involved in investigating a rather bizarre, bizarre murder of a prominent politician. And there's a subplot there about a business that is set up to wreak revenge on others. If if you've got some grievance of someone, you could go to this place, Vindicat, and you could pay these people to carry out some nasty jape or payback kind of thing. It was a very interesting storyline, but I did wonder how did you feel about that side of it yourself? Is is it an is it a service you would be tempted to use?
2: No, I wouldn't myself. I see revenge and seeking revenge as pretty destructive. Focusing on your hurts and obsessing about them really is not a good way to heal and move on. And it can also be kind of revenge can be a vicious circle. In the novel, Emily's boyfriend, Jack, who's a physician, talks about the results of revenge that he sees in the emergency room. There'll be a gang shooting and a boy will come in who's been shot. And then the next night, there's another boy in a rival gang who comes in because there's been retribution. So nothing's ever solved by revenge, I think. And as Emily and Jack talk about Vendicott, they really see some red flags. And one is that Sophie has appointed herself judge and jury. She wants revenge, not justice. And her, she says there's never gonna be physical harm to anyone, but her revenge can be quite diabolical, can ruin careers and reputations. I have to say it was kind of fun to write all that evil stuff.
1: Yeah. The nasty tricks that they played on that chap where they locked him out of his hotel room and gave him a really bad time. That was a very
2: imaginative little um, trick that you played there. Yes. And, you know, it was also fun to work in the theme of revenge and tie it into the Jacobean revenge tragedies and strange old myths like the witch who cursed Warwick Castle. And I enjoy, I enjoyed the theme of revenge and pulling it throughout the novel.
1: Yeah, it was really fun. Look, in your second book, Homicide in Hawaii, events from the past influence what happens today. And you had to delve into some of the island's history for that, for that book. What was the most interesting thing that you found as you were doing your research for that
2: book? Well, in the novel, the woman who is the murder victim is a wealthy heiress, and she is descended from the missionaries who came to Hawaii and got very rich in the sugar industry. They came to do good and did very well indeed, as the saying is. But she felt so guilty about her family's past that she set up a trust that's crucial to the plot. So I had to look into the history of Hawaii and find out why someone would have reason to feel bad about this. What I found was when the new queen came to power in Hawaii, she decided she was going to rule herself instead of letting the group of sugar plantation owners do it. Now, they were afraid this was going to lead to tariffs on sugar and they'd lose money. So they asked for help from American troops and they staged a coup. They locked up the queen and told her if she did not abdicate, they were going to execute 200 of her supporters. So the monarchy ended and Hawaii became an American territory. In 1933, the U.S. Congress acknowledged that the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii was illegal. So Amanda had good reason to think her fortune came at the expense of Native Hawaiians and to want to make amends. So that was a grim but interesting slice of history that it was at the heart of the story. But really, all of Hawaii's history that I looked up was interesting to me. I was fascinated by the myth of Pele, the goddess of the volcano, and the story of the replica of the sailing canoe that brought the Polynesians to Hawaii. So uh, looking up all that kind of history is fun for me. I like working facts and history and myths into the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in the very first book, you have referred already to Madeline Island, Most people may not know where Madeline Island even is. Tell us a bit about that. It's near to where you live, isn't it? And you've described it as one of your favorite places in all of the world. Tell us about Madeline Island.
2: Well, it's not super close. It's about six hours away from where I live, but it's beautiful. Madeline Island is one of the Apostle Islands in Lake Superior in Wisconsin, a neighboring state. Minneapolis in Minnesota. It is just a beautiful Northwoods area with birch and pine woods, big red rock cliffs, sandy beaches with icy cold deep blue water. You have to take a ferry to get to the island and that gives it kind of a magical feeling. You're isolated there and it's wild and gorgeous. Now two members of my writing group had places up on the island. So our group went up there To write and to critique each other's work. And we also, when we were there, started hiking in the state park. We went to Tom's Burnt Down Cafe. We did all the things my amateur sleuth, Emily Swift, does in the novel. So it just seemed like it would be a natural place to set that first novel. And it was easy to write about, as I said before, because I knew it so well, it was easy to describe.
1: So why did you settle on the mystery genre? When you began your writing, were you a, always a big fan of mysteries, or how did you get into actually the mystery side of it?
2: Well, I, I have been a fan of mysteries. I wanted to write the kind of book I'd like to read. And from the time I was little and read Nancy Drew and Sherlock Holmes, I've loved them. So I think it's very satisfying to relax with a good story, a satisfying mystery. Justice is done. You know it's going to be. There's some humor and the characters are likable. So, you know, I do belong to a book group and we discuss very serious literary novels, but I also like this kind of um, little relaxation novel of something that's amusing and fun. And that's what I wanted to write.
1: You want to write something that's entertaining. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about your journey from that first step of joining a writing, a, a novelist class. To getting yourself a publisher. I gather you're published now by Cozy Cat Press, aren't you? How did that come about?
2: Well, it was not easy to find a publisher, to tell you the truth. Sadly, the, the barrier was the travel thing, which I thought was a wonderful idea myself. But it's the thing is, it's a cozy in that it does not have explicit gory violence described or graphic sex. And the there isn't a police officer who is the main protagonist. So that makes it a cozy. And publishers have a very narrow view of what a cozy is sometimes. They think, it has to be set in a small town and the character has to have a reliable circle of friends who are going to show up in every single book. That's what readers expect. And I thought, I thought that people really love to read books that are set in places they've gone on vacation or wish they had gone on vacation. And, and, I certainly do. So I thought that it was a good idea, but I, it turns out I was in a minority there. So luckily, Cozy Cat Press did decide that they they liked the book and they wanted it.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, how each of these little subgenres has these almost rules that they tend to follow. And I guess a lot of readers probably in their cozies do want that small town yes. and the established group of friends every time. But yeah, it's interesting how it can really be quite a barrier to, to getting yourself out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, it was, sadly. But, you know, I, I, am a, I did get it published, so I'm glad.
1: Yeah, that's great. But moving perhaps away from the specific books to your wider career, tell us a bit, a bit about your life before you became a writer, an author, a fiction author, and how did those experiences influence what you're doing today?
2: well in my real career I always was a writer I worked in as a staff writer and then communication director for the state Medical Association and in that role I wrote speeches and news releases and articles so I was I was used to writing it was something that I could do it was a skill that I had developed over many long years I was there for a long time. The other thing that I think influenced my writing was the love of travel that developed from my very earliest childhood. When I was eight years old, my family lived in Milan and I just fell in love with Italy. On weekends, we'd take the train and we'd go to Switzerland or Lake Como or Venice. We visited art museums and castles. So I discovered at a very early age The joy that comes from living in a place that's really different in language and food, general atmosphere. So it was wonderful. And from then on, I wanted to keep on traveling. Then after college, I uh, went with my friend Susan to Europe. And at that time, you could live for $5 a day. And we didn't have any particular plan, but we had lots of wonderful experiences. So I think that influenced my choice to write travel mysteries.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> so have you done quite a lot of travel in your life since?
2: Um, we have done, we, We've not as much as we'd like, but we have. My husband and I have gone to England a couple of times and we've gone to France and gone to Italy a couple of times. So yes, we have and it had wonderful trips.
1: Great. Look, Just changing the pace a little bit, this is a fun question that popped up in Goodreads, and I sometimes like to pop it in there. Is there a mystery in your own life that could be the plot line for a novel? You know, that
2: is such an interesting question. I never had thought about that, but actually there is. My mother became very interested in learning more about our Irish heritage. Her dad was Irish. So one day she went to downtown Chicago to do some research and I don't know where exactly she went maybe the historical society but when she came home she was badly shaken she said very dramatically she was a little dramatic the veil must be drawn i will never reveal what i found out today <laughs> so, so naturally we were just dying to know but she never told us she would not tell so when you asked that question, I thought, well, that could be the start of a story. Someone could be doing genealogical research and uncover a secret and have to go to Ireland to find out the truth. There might be horrible repercussions for people in present day. I thought, that could be a plot line.
1: Absolutely. But you've never been tempted to go and do your own research on that.
2: <laughs> well, you know, my sister and I talk about doing that all the time, and we've never actually done it. I don't know why. It's always a plan. We're going to do it. But we get caught up in doing other things and, you know, we just haven't.
1: Yeah. I know that thing, actually, that there might be a... One of my um, ancestors, I understand, might have actually also Irish, embezzled quite a lot of money and disappeared to the States. This is 19th century. I've never actually... Tried to follow this through myself, but it's a bit of a rumor in the family, and I I do wonder—is it actually true that? <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> maybe they were collaborators. Who knows? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you see as being the secret of your success?
2: Well, unfortunately, I haven't found the secret yet. I'm happy with my books. I worked really hard on them and I did a lot of revising and editing. They, I think they are the sort of books I love to read and my re- readers say kind things, but they are not widely known or widely read. And I'm trying to do better at promoting them on social media, but it's not something I'm particularly good at. So I personally would love to know the secret to success.
1: <laughs> I think even just having a publisher and getting them out there is it is is the first step anyway but yeah I mean I think probably also just keep going because you know this is, I, I'm I'm afraid that probably people who listen to this podcast all the time might get bored to hear me repeat this but there's quite a well-known romance writer called Stephanie Lawrence in fact a very well-known romance writer called Stephanie Lawrence and she famously said that she says to starting out writers don't expect to get anywhere until you've got at least six books published and possibly as many as 10 or 12. Oh, my
2: goodness. (laughs) So it
1: might be just a case of keeping on going.
2: Oh, yeah, well, that's true. And I enjoy writing them, so that's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And what about the worst advice that you might have received or heard others offer to beginning writers?
2: You know, actually, I've been really lucky. All the advice I received was good. I went to an excellent mystery writing conference put on by The Loft, which when I was just starting out and I took classes by William Kent Kruger and Aaron Hart, Vince Flynn and others. And I learned a lot from these Really excellent writers. That was very good. And I told you already about Will Weaver and my professor in college, Mildred Walker, who was a novelist. So, all of these, all of the people who gave me advice, I would have to say, were very helpful and very good.
1: That's lovely. That's fantastic. Give us an idea of the time frame from when you first started studying how to be a writer to today. How long is that?
2: Wow, I'm going to just throw out 10 years. And I'm not sure that's exactly right, but I think I've been yeah. writing for 10 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess the point I'm kind of making is that there's not really anything like instant success, is there?
2: No, no, there's not. For most
1: people, anyway.
2: No, I haven't found instant success, no.
1: But networking with other re- writers is
2: very important to you? Yes, it is. It really is because um, I think you need feedback from other people to find out if you've, if you've made clear what you're trying to make clear, if people really are able to visualise what you've described and if they understand the characters. And my group is very helpful. They, they really come up with good ideas. Are you all writing in the same genre? No. Christopher Valen is actually a very successful mystery writer now, but he does write more of a police procedural. They're very interesting, very good books, and he has about six of them out right now. Then Abby Davis has written a historical novel, and Linda Donaldson is a poet, and then a, a couple of the original members of the group, one who wrote Legal Satires, has passed away. And so it's a small group now. We have dwindled, but they're still very good. Yeah,
1: yeah. Turning to Laurie as reader, because this is The Joys of Binge Reading, and it really is about those sorts of books that you were saying you like to write, the ones that people read for entertainment and that they can binge read. They don't have to exert too much um, intellectual power to just be able to enjoy them. Tell us about your taste in binge reading fiction and have you got a couple of recommendations for current series that people might be interested in in having a go at reading?
2: Well, you know, I just discovered a golden age British mystery writer in the Agatha Christie tradition, which I had never heard of before, and I have been binging on her books. Patricia Wentworth's Miss Silver Mysteries. They feature an elderly private detective who I find absolutely delightful. And she's written lots and lots of books, so I am not going to run out of them in a hurry. Oh,
1: that's great.
2: A modern author I really enjoy is Catherine Hall Page, and she's written a number of books. Because her amateur sleuth is such a likable woman, she's just someone you'd want for a friend. You feel like you know her. And so when she's caught up in mysteries, they're very believable, very well written, and I love those. Oh, that's great. Another favorite of mine is Martin Walker, and I know you've interviewed him on your show. I love his Inspector Bruno series, and it's partly because of his marvelous descriptions of the Perigord region in France, the caves and the history and the French food and wine. My husband and I stayed in the Perigord a few years ago, and we visited those caves, and we canoed down the Dordogne accompanied by this fleet of swans. It was just a magical experience. So Walker's novels bring this all back, and I just love them. So
1: Yeah, he's really into food, and actually that does remind me that in the Cotswolds, Killing in the Cotswolds, there's quite a few uh, references to lovely English food, afternoon
2: teas and things as well. So you probably share that in common, do you? Oh, yes. I, uh, I had uh, my heroine, Emily, try to track down the very best tea time. And of course, she didn't because she loved them all. But I kind of feel that way myself. They were just marvellous.
1: It's interesting to hear an American appreciate
2: tea, too. (laughs) Oh, I love tea time. Well, I always have it at home, too.
1: That's interesting, yeah. Look, circling back, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So just looking back over this last decade, um, actually, when did you decide, how long ago did you actually go to full-time writing?
2: Um, it, It actually was about 10 years ago because that's when I retired, And before that, I had a very busy job and really didn't have time to write novels.
1: So looking back over that 10 years that you've been writing, um, if you were doing it all again, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would it be?
2: I can't think of anything I would change in the past 10 years. I've uh, really enjoyed having the opportunity to write and to devote myself to that and to travel If I looked back, you know, over my whole life and said, what was I going to change? I would, I still don't think I'd change anything, but I'm always curious about the road you didn't take. When I was leaving college, my advisor, Mildred Walker, said I should possibly go to the Iowa Writing School and see if I could really become a writer, a serious writer. I didn't feel ready to do that. So instead, I went to Europe with my friend, Susan. And I wouldn't have missed that for anything. We had a wonderful time. But, you know, I think it would be great if life could be kind of a choose-your-own-adventure and you could you could do one path and then you could go back and go down the other path. I sometimes think writers create their characters so they can just kind of vicariously live out other choices, other realities that they're not really part of. When you feel... One life just is not enough.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I I know a couple of years ago, one of the books that won an award in Amazon had exactly that as a plot line, that people had the opportunity to change just one thing in their life. And then the story was about sort of how that made a difference to the whole picture. It's quite a fascinating idea, isn't it? It is. It is, yes. Yes. And what was that writing school that you mentioned? I don't know if I've heard of it before. The Isle of Writing, was it? What's uh, that?
2: Oh, the Iowa Writing School. Iowa. Oh, I'm Iowa. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And was the, is that a university-based program? I think it is. And I did not look into it, but famous writers very often will say they came out of the Iowa school, so. Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it says something that your lecturer recognised that uh, talent in you right back
2: then. Well, she only said maybe. <laughs> she said <laughs> she said I think, but you never know.
1: <laughs> now, what is next for Laurie as writer? What you, what projects have you got under development at the moment?
2: Well, I have an idea for a fourth travel mystery, but I'm kind of stymied by the pandemic. Mm. Ideally, I would be in France right now. I'd be in Paris in the Loire Valley doing research for the novel I was thinking of writing. But I'm not. I'm here and I'm likely to stay here until they find a vaccine for it. So Mm. uh, that's not good. So I'm not writing a novel right now. I'm trying to focus on getting some publicity for the books I already have written and um, working on a little short story just for fun, but not not anything serious.
1: Maybe the idea is to find another locally based story in the States, although even traveling around the States is probably a bit, you know, a bit tentative at this stage.
2: Well, it is. That's the problem. I would love to go up north, you know, up to Madeline Island or up to the North Shore. But even that, I think, is is not safe because you can't do it in one day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So do you enjoy making contact with your readers? And if so,
2: how can they find you online? Uh, yes, I love to make contact with my readers. They, I've gone to talk to writers groups and I enjoy doing that. And I enjoy hearing their feedback and seeing people in person. But on social media, I have a website. It's www. Loruriholmgren.com and you can find lots of photos of the places I've been and ph- places in the novel, which is fun, I think. I'm on Facebook as Lori Holmgren author and on Twitter and Pinterest. My books are for sale in print and Kindle on Amazon and Amazon UK. So and Lori is LORRIE so sometimes <laughs> that it's hard to find someone with an oddly spelled Lori, but that that's me.
1: It's a funny coincidence, but I've, I've interviewed another writer called Laurie just last week after – you're the first two Laurie's that I've ever met and, and just happened to be in the same couple of weeks. So it, it's just – and her name was spelt L-O-R-I, just slightly different from yours. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, look, we will have the links to all of those references, your social media, your books, your website – all of those will be in the links for the show notes for this episode, which will be permanently online. So people who are interested in tracking down those links and and don't, just write them down right now while we're talking. You can go to the website, com, and it'll all be there, published in a couple of weeks. So Laurie, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much for taking part
2: today and all the very best for the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you and I've enjoyed uh, listening to your podcast too. It's such a good show.
1: Thanks so much. Certainly during lockdown, it was my one sort of source of social interaction. It was really quite fun. We had a lockdown here in New Zealand sort of May, June, I think it was. And we'd just come out of a second one, but the second one was slightly less severe. The first one was quite severe. And having the podcast every week just kept me entertained and sane.
2: That's (laughs) great, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by abe raffles another gem of sound and screen abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and tv presenter i think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm he is super easy to work with no matter what the job You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.